Hello, I'm Jensen Bueller. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. This one, I feel like we're going to waste some time on. Not waste. We're going to have a good conversation. Yeah, we're going to spend some time. We're going to spend some time. I'm gonna, we're going to have a little chitty chat about the, the EPA. Um, so it came out that <laughs> it almost strikes me as like Orwellian in the way the EPA is, is acting. Because it's uh, the EPA basically is saying like, hey, so ever since the Clean Air Act... Uh, we've had the uh, ability to dictate what you do with your car or motorcycle or any vehicle that is registered for use on public roadways. Um, we also have the uh, jurisdiction to control how you use that on private property and for non-public um, use. Basically saying, like, you know, if you modify your car's intake or exhaust for racing use, like, you're breaking the law. Yeah. And it was SEMA the um the group that represents the bulk of the aftermarket uh car manufacturer parts people and things like that which is a huge there's the SEMA show in vegas every year has become like one of the largest trade shows in the nation right yeah so 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 the epa basically came out with a statement that they they're of the opinion that they've always had this right to regulate your vehicle even for off-road use but to clarify the position they would like to update some of the wording of the rules and regulations that uh control that and you're like huh that's an interesting way of looking at it so the reality is is that the epa wants to dictate what you can do with your basically any vehicle with a vin um what you can do with that vehicle even if it's not on a public road so if it's in the back your backyard it's on an off-road trail it's at a racetrack they want to be able to say that you cannot change or modify or replace any of the emission controlling equipment which obviously has huge implications for um, the motorcycle industry because it would basically mean like my track, well, my track bike, my R1 would be still legal because it's got all the emission stuff still on it. But like my Supermoto, which has a, a slip on exhaust, well, I guess it might still be legal too. Yeah, but I guarantee you it doesn't have the evaporative emissions canister on it. I guarantee you it doesn't have whatever exhaust, exhaust gas recirculation or, you know, there's a few other things more than just the muffler. Sure. And sure. people got to remember there's more than just exhaust emissions going on uh, and more than just what's in the muffler. That's part of that exhaust emissions. But the fuel, the evaporative emissions is actually a big one as well, even though most people yank the charcoal canisters uh, off pretty quickly. And just so everybody knows the charcoal canister is, um, on every motorcycle that is road legal, that has been, you know, carb or EPA certified, uh, when the gas, uh, vents, it vents out of the top of the fuel tank and it goes into a tube that goes into a charcoal canister, which essentially catalyzes the fuel, uh, scrubs it and keeps it from going into the atmosphere. Right. Wouldn't matter a whole lot if it was just one or two, but we're, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of vehicles, cars, motorcycles. There's actually a lot of ev uh, evaporation going on. Fuel, fuel evaporates fairly quickly, and it it's just as bad as, or nearly as bad as um, uh, tailpipe emissions. So that's what that's what you do. You, you yank that off because it's either in the way or complex in some short or the tubes Guns are up or right. You know, whatever yeah. you it's, if you crash and the fuel tank, the fuel tank drips into it, which is happens often and it saturates the carbon, then it's useless and you have to change it. Right. So, um, that's, that's one part of it. And, and if they're saying, okay, on every single vehicle, every single one, I mean, this is one of the first things that comes off on any race bike, 
Uh, I don't even think any dirt bike has a charcoal canister on it. So it's interesting to, to well, think. Well, that's the thing. So the dirt bike wouldn't unless it was, a, but it has a it was an enduro. It has a VIN. So the question is for me is like, what, what really, where are they just talking about internal combustion period? No, no, no. It has to be road legal. It has to be something that would fall under the clean air act. Okay. So, so enduro style plated dirt bikes, it would fall under anything. I should, sorry, VIN number is probably the wrong thing to say. Anything with a license plate, anything that would normally have a license plate on it. Normally. Right. Right. Because you can get an MSO for a vehicle, not the, not register it. And then have it as a, as your thing. And the question is, is are they going to notice where are they going to look at sales records and say, okay, where's this person? And do they have their, are they going to go to racetracks and start going to everybody's? No. Are they going to start sorting out from year no. model to year model? Cause you know, a lot of older vehicles. So that was one of the things that, that people jumped on this right away was like, Oh, how's the EPA going to enforce this? They're not going to come down my, they're not going to come out of Portland international and uh, you know, start checking VIN numbers and doing like, no, 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 no. The, you're going about the wrong way. They're going to go after the aftermarket parts sellers. This, and this is why SEMA is getting so involved. They don't, they don't really give a shit what Quentin and I do. They give a big shit about what, uh, Yoshimura or Kropovich or Dino Jet or Vance and Hines, Vance and Hines, what these guys going to do. Cause those, those are easy to crack down on. Like, Oh, you're selling a street legal muffler. Well, you got to go through this whole homologation process. Like, it's like, if you ever been stopped by a police officer on the road and they look at your exhaust and be like, Oh, show me your EPA stamp. Show me your carb stamp that tells me that this is a road legal pipe. Well, not a lot of people that are listening might have had to deal with this, but in California, it is it's a huge, huge yeah. to the point where even as a manufacturer, uh, Ducati, had to make carb legal like it was it was it's not epa it's it's carb legal uh exhaust that would come in and we there was only a couple different models that have it because no dealership in california 40 percent of ducati's market 40 right 4t not 14 um is 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 not able to sell the exhaust which is a huge part of a profitability of a dealership and it has been for years. Right. So especially with, a, say, a Panigale. No, with a scrambler where you're making sure. your money on the aftermarket for, sale. For the most part, you are. But say with a Panigale, I mean, uh, I mean, when you're looking at numbers, a scrambler exhaust is, I don't know, 1300 bucks or something. I can't remember. Something like that. Panigale exhaust, a 2022 to $25,000 bike with a $4,000 for yeah. $3,500, $4,000 exhaust. That's where it hits because it's like, shoot, that's good. There's good profit margin there. Uh, it's good quality. It's a very complicated system, but it's it, it, that's where their money's made. And if they if they have to make a homologated special system, which I don't think they do for the Panigale, there was like a couple of them, like a Multistrada, maybe a Hyper, can't remember. But they had to make specific ones for California to be able to say, hey, these are are, are legal. And many dealerships won't still are, are reticent um, because it's so. They could get sued ten times, and they have done. There has been multiple uh, uh, examples. Get fined, yeah, big fines, right? So that was one reason I was uh, very fortunate to be able to sell my uh, Multistrada with a full system to a guy in California, because my bike had never been registered. It was a a Ducati uh, purchase, so it was MSO'd. He was able to just register it. Nobody had to put the exhaust on down there. (laughs) Nobody, it didn't, there was no paper trail for it, right? Well, and there's, and California's law too, like there's a bit of grandfathering going in because it's a fairly new law. So I'm going to get, I'm going to get the dates wrong on the bike, but it's something like if your bike's before a 2008 model or yeah, 2012 like or whatever sure, it is, sure, sure. It's, it's grandfathered in. But, you know, obviously going forward, it's going to be a huge deal. Any new bike is going to have this issue. Um, and then if the EPA has their way, it's going to be, it's going to really affect 
the aftermarket sales, which is about 10% of this industry. Or the aftermarket's just going to have to comply. I don't know what it takes. It's not that bad, though, they have to come up with. It might be expensive, but if everybody's having to play by the same rules and they have to put catalyzers in their pipes in some way, shape, or form, or they just have to go through the, the process, really it's a money grab by the government more than it is anything because we're talking about such a small percentage of vehicles. Okay, well, explain to me how it's a money grab from the government because the government's not getting any money for this. If the... If they are making regulations and causing the uh, the aftermarket manufacturer to make a homologated exhaust, how ex- where does the money go to to get that? Don't they have to get a license from the you uh, know from say California? Uh, well, not from California, but from the federal government. But uh, like this is this is the thing where I, I, I disagree that it's a money grab from the government. I don't see how the government's profiting from this. Like there's going to be some level of enforcement from it, but I think the bigger issue. Isn't that it's like, oh, this is a great way to like to tax us with our tax exhaust pipes or whatever it is. I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's if anything, it's it's the EPA being like, we're going to regulate your off road vehicle just as if it was on road because emissions off road are just as damaging as emissions on road. Like it's like just because you're riding your bike around on a racetrack doesn't mean like the emissions from it are going to stay contained to that racetrack. They're going out in the atmosphere just like all the other as much just as all the other ones are. And and if anything, like when you're pinning it at 13,000 RPMs around the entire racetrack, you're putting out more emissions than you are when you're putting down the freeway at 5,000 RPMs. Huge amounts. If if anybody's done a track day has noticed that when you are at a track day, your fuel consumption is almost double. Yeah. If you're going fast, right? Yeah. Easy. I I go through a can, a four gallon can in the morning session. I go through another four gallon can in the, in the afternoon session. So I'm easily, I don't know what the mileage breaks down to, but I'm putting it's probably 10 miles a gallon, 10 to 15. Yeah, like, it's, it's really bad. Wouldn't surprise me. It, it, I'm not saying I know exactly, but I would, okay, whatever. But we're talking about such a small percentage of the population that does this, whether it be car or motorcycle. But even in the car side, even on the off-road side, I know how many people are out there. I've been to China Hat on a, on a Saturday in the middle of the summer. I've seen how many people are out, cars, motorcycles, everything. But I just don't, I do not believe for a second that it should be any, even close to being regulated because it, frankly, it's almost like a, a fun tax, right? It is a fun tax, but, but, I'll, but here's the other part of it too. It's not limited to just you and I on the racetrack. How many people who buy new Panigale buy new exhaust? They may never hit the racetrack with it, but yeah, sure. you know, putting an exhaust pipe or putting a power commander or you know, making modifications is shoot. I think how many motorcycles sold each year do you think stay stock? Yeah, not many. But you how know? many are sold each year? How many miles are traveled? How much emissions? Does it does it matter? I think it'd be infinitesimal compared to cars. Whereas, but that's the thing. This isn't affecting just motorcycles. It's affecting cars, trucks, bikes scooters so so i think that's a part of the 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 thing that people are are missing is this isn't like something that's targeted just at motorcyclists it's targeted at all motor vehicles and all the epa is doing is saying hey we're going to treat all motor vehicles the same we're going to go after cars and bikes alike we're going to go after on-road and off-road alike because at the end of the day what comes out of the tailpipe doesn't change based on what vehicle or what use it's being at it's it's an emission from a tailpipe and we need to regulate emissions from tailpipes because you know, in about 30 years or so, whatever, we're going to be like three feet underwater. Yeah, I will. Unfortunately, most people say we're past the point where that's even going to matter by a long shot, right? So even even somebody like me who is very environmentally aware, I don't, unf- yeah, it might be a little bit because it, it, it affects what I do. But would, I, would it be a big deal for me to put a 
catalyzed exhaust and an evap canister on my XR650, right? Say say it was in the VIN range or in the year range that it is not. But say I had to do that, really would it affect me that bad? No, it wouldn't. So the question is like, all right, but where's the money grab? Is it? I think in the reality, let's say, let's, first of all, I don't think the EPA is going to win on this one. I think, I think the EPA stance that they've had this right all in this ability all along is wrong. I think that on its face, from just a legal perspective, from a legislative perspective, there's no, there's no backing for that. There's no, there's no basis for that. It'd be interesting to see the law though. We do, we, do you the clean know? air act? Yeah. It's, it's, it's and the clean air act is written very ambiguously, but you look at the legislative notes on it and this is something that a judge would take into account. Yeah, sure. When and something well, maybe, that you, maybe, you're saying that you have read. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. It, it's very, it's very ambiguous. And, and, and that's where like the EPA is kind of like, well, we've always had that right. We'll just go look at the law. And you're like, yeah, well, you know, you're right in that sense. But like when the EPA representative was asked specifically if, you know, this would apply to vehicles, you know, production vehicles that are used in off-road or off-highway applications, the guy's like, no, of course not. It wouldn't be. We're not looking to, to regulate that. Um, those kind of things, while not a part of the law, can definitely be looked at by by a court, by a judge and be like, well, this was the legislative intent when this law was built. That's a huge part of understanding like Anton Scalia, God rest his soul, would disagree with that. But t- judges all the time look at the legislative intent of legislatures and, and the records of sessions in Congress or sessions in the legislature to, to understand what the legislative intent was when a law was built to help interpret how that law should be yeah. looked at in the law and, and, and how it's applied. So I really don't think the EPA is going to has a strong leg to stand on in this regard. I don't, I don't think, I think at the because end of the at day, the time that that clean air act was enacted, right. Or at that time they were looking at overwhelming, probably more coal fired power plants and they, major car emission stuff. This particular provision was literally like, Hey, we need to start regulating what comes out of the tailpipes of cars. Okay. So better. it was a car thing. All right. Um, Almost solely car thing. Well, car, motor vehicles, motor vehicles on public roads meanwhile meanwhile the trucks like if you're branded a truck you get some sort of dispensation it's like oh well we're gonna give trucks a break even though they're by far the largest sold vehicles in the united states right well now we go down a slippery slope because like then you'd be like well diesel trucks that go across the country they put out more polluters and they're regulated um, just differently and then you're like well airplanes do more but reality wise like coal factories and like it, it's it's a thing it's it, all shit that's getting poured into the environment it, it's that's all hydrocarbons being burned at, at the end of the day it's it's the epa looking at a law and being like hey there's wiggle room in this law we could use that wiggle room to go after some low-hanging fruit which is basically the aftermarkets industry because they, they basically want to stop people like you and I who put an aftermarket exhaust on our street bikes that says it's for track use only and it's sold legally for track use only and the dealer just turns a blind eye to you know the fact that it's going on a street bike because there's no penalty for them in doing so and it's the same thing with like the whole fast and furious generation We're like hey I'm gonna go soup up my car and put a you know cat back exhaust or whatever on there and it's like okay well now you've taken something that was for track use only and put it on a street car or whatever it is it's just them trying to regulate that. And, and, you know, for me, like, you know, I wrote, I wrote a very, like this, the headline was literally the unpopular argument that the EPA is right. Cause I know this isn't a, this isn't going to be a popular idea, No, sure. but there is an element where I, th- I think we have to say is like motorists. It's like, you know, if we want to get serious about like the environment and like want to continue to have 
places to to ride our motorcycles and in nature and things like that like it is something you have to take into consideration we need to at least have a conversation we need to at least have a minute to think about hey you know do we really need to have like a full system exhaust on a street bike or or if we do does it really need to be like a straight through exhaust do we really need to take our emission controls off like at what point in superbike racing you know what, what leader bike nowadays isn't making close to 200 horsepower with all the EPA emissions and noise restrictions in place, you know, do we really need to like have 205? Do we really need to have 210 horsepower by taking that stuff off? Or mm. is that something like, Hey, we can race and have track enthusiasts and go off road and do all these things and still be, have our environmental footprint be small and regulated. I'll keep going back to the fact that you talk about low hanging fruit. This is one apple on a gigantic tree and the bulk of the tree is cross-country trucks and or not when i say trucks i mean f-150s i mean chevy silverados i mean dodges Start they, get, they cre- go into a farm equipment except or farm equipment about. holy yeah. crap all the combines that you see going I and mean, these are large machines pumping out massive go after that shit that is mostly being used for commerce than more than things that are going after for fun so that's why I was saying it's fun tax. I want to see businesses taxed on it. So I want to see those combines. Oh, the poor farmers. Yeah, take your ethanol subsidies, motherfuckers, right? That, you guys, here, have some more ethanol. Put it in your shitty machines and make sure it's scrubbed so it doesn't puke into the environment. That's what I'm talking about. That, and, they, and any brakes, I don't know if they still exist, but there were brakes for trucks, trucks, quote unquote trucks. And that pissed me off so much because me, but you know, riding around in my Honda Del Sol, and my even my Nissan, uh, or sorry, my my wife's Nissan Pathfinder, my Toyota uh, Tacoma, it's trying to drive vehicles that are a little bit on the small side and not gigantic pukers. My freaking my Mercedes van with a two point four liter four cylinder engine, trying to get something that has at least a okay mileage, right? Instead of horrible gas guzzling shitty vehicles that are poorly and then poorly regulated and not there's nobody that's 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 going after people when they see when somebody's rolling coal are there any cops saying hey i need to go after that person probably not and they should be right well not well there's there's a few things you bring up there and one of the ones that comes back to is like like the hummer when the hummer came out because it weighed a certain amount it counted you could get a farm exemption uh-huh. because it was it i'm was sure five tons or whatever it Fuck was that um, and, and so there's, there's lots of loopholes in the law and yeah, close those up, stop going after the fun, but that's the whole, but that's the thing. Like just because we're, we're one apple on the tree of all these fruits that need to be plucked. Like that doesn't mean that, it, that it's not right for the EPA. Like it's not just like, well, there's, there's Jimmy over there and he's doing something worse than what I'm doing. So you should be going after Jimmy, not me. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. You go after me and Jimmy, you know, the, it's not like the, it's not like whack-a-mole. You have to, you have to be a blanket thing because it's all it all adds up at the end of the day no no, i disagree i think it's you don't go after go after jimmy because he's making money and don't go after us because we're having fun we're enjoying and it's it's a it's half of a slice of but that's the other part like they're not going after you and i no one's going to show up at our door and be like hey sir i'd like to Uh, look at your tail they are because they're going after companies that we they're they're gonna find any company that that makes an exhaust pipe that isn't compliant that makes any sort of intake that's not compliant that makes any sort of evaporation canister removal kit that that's the companies I'm going to go after. And, and, you know, I don't necessarily, I'm, I'm torn on it because I like modifying my vehicles. I like having a dyno jet on my soup, on my road legal supermoto. I've got uh, an exhaust pipe and I've got a power commander. Both of those things would be illegal under this because it's a road legal bike that I rate that I use almost exclusively at the track. That's literally what this law is going to crack down on. Yeah. That's lame. 
and, and like i don't like it there's a part of me that doesn't like it but on the flip side like you have to at least understand the logic behind the fact that like whether or not my supermoto is at the car track or just putting around yeah, town. Yeah, you're still emitting emissions. I'm, I agree I'm with doing it. Bad it's not stuff. like I'm, I'm saying no, that yeah. I don't agree with that. And, and just because some guy rolling coal is doing worse to the environment than me doesn't mean that I get a pass because I'm not the worst person yet. Yeah, it doesn't work no, that way. I, I disagree. I, it's, it's one thing to be just going out with something that might not be optimal when you're sitting at idle, whatever the freaking stupid EPA slash carb test is. That's another part of this is the testing is bullshit. So instead of testing at 10,000 RPM on a 12,000 RPM engine and seeing what's coming out of the tailpipe when a double overhead cam, uh, uh, high revving engine is at its most efficient, they test at idle, which is where a, a dumb fucking push rod V8 or push rod V twin would be at its most efficient at this low luppity 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 RPM. That's always been a kicker. And that this is something that I feel from the eighties on has been against the Japanese manufacturers because the Japanese manufacturer had these extremely efficient, uh, engines that worked on the highway or as they're actually going down the road, they were more efficient. Whereas you're sitting there idling, these horrible American cars were not, they were only good sitting there idling. So there's, there's, it's, it's, there's more tangents to go off of than just saying, okay, people that uh, are, are recreating need to be regulated just as much as the people that aren't. So are you saying that because there's uh, issues in the, in the enforcement system and issues with the law that therefore this law shouldn't be, in a, shouldn't be a priority? Yeah, Absolutely. I would say get the whole get the whole thing should be completely. Cause that, that's where I disagree. Because like I say, just because there's there's other things that are wrong, doesn't mean that this should get a pass. You fix every you, you should fix the other things that are wrong, but this is wrong too. So this should be fixed too. Yeah, but I don't think it's wrong. You and, just you and your vehicle, I don't think are polluting at nearly the rate. That doesn't matter. That not doesn't even matter. Close, like a, and they're not testing it. To, it to it's just, not. A, it's not a serial process. It's a parallel process. You don't do one and then do the other. You do them all at the same time as best as you can. Well, they're not doing it at all. That's the thing. Well, I mean, so and, and they're, that, they're not that, testing And that's your a bigger butt. issue. And that's an issue to get more upset about. But I don't think the the tailpipe thing. I don't think the CPA thing is something that you can sit there and be like, well. Planes pollute way more than than any vehicle on the road does. So we should be we should really be talking about planes here. It's like no no we should no, be talking. You're right. I, should, see, we, I agree with that. We should be talking about planes and we should be regulating planes and and maybe that's that's something we should be looking into and should begin working on. But that doesn't exempt everything on the road now. That doesn't like oh the plane's worse than the car. So regulate planes, don't regulate cars. Like that's not that that argument doesn't fly with me. Regulate the planes, regulate the cars. And if there's only so many people to do this job, regulate the well, one that's worse first. There's that. There's right? that. But, it, but that's the thing. That's that's where I look at this law. Like this is like the way the EPA is going to enforce this is very smart because it's not that, that's why I say it's a low hanging fruit. It's like you can make a significant dent to emissions coming from on-road vehicles using being used in off-road purposes very easily because you just you make the law and you say hey if you're a business that that produces one of these parts now we're going to fine you that's a very easy thing to be to enforce it doesn't take a lot of resources it doesn't take a lot of manpower and it's extremely effective in achieving the goal that you're setting out to do which is to curb more of it emissions so so i look at that and i'm like that's that's kind of smart that's kind of a smart way of doing it they're not going to go after the people they're not going to create some task force that's going to show up your track day they're going to be like hey akrakovich we noticed that you're making this exhaust pipe that um, doesn't comply with, you know, emission standards and this whole, basically you're just saying we're removing the track only exemption. Oh, this is for racing use only. Well, there's no such thing as racing use only anymore. So everything you make needs to be street use compliant. 
And if it's not, we're going to fine you. And if you keep doing it, then eventually we'll bar you from doing business. I think it's a red herring going after this instead of going after the big polluters. Red herring. But I, completely, but hey, look over saying, here. Though. We're doing something. We're effective. It's not, it's not one or the other. It's both at the same time. Uh, and, I, and I just disagree. That 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 logic d- does not fall on me. I think the if you're going to go after, I mean, we're talking infinitesimal amounts of, of type pipe emissions relative to just passenger cars. If you just enforced passenger cars or came up with rules to, to check them after X amount of miles, we should look, what does Japan do? Because I guarantee you, Japan does quite a bit and they make sure that vehicles that are older don't exist for very long. That's why you can get so many aftermarket engines from Japan, not aftermarket, but engines that have like 50,000 miles on them get poured into this country because they just, they don't allow it. Right. And I don't know what the rules are, but that would be an interesting, um, examination to see, okay, how does Germany deal with this? How, how does Japan deal? Or there's countries that frankly might be better at it than us, because I don't, I just don't think we're good enough, the, uh, enough at the base to, to regulate it, let alone go after something that yeah, has low hanging fruit, but it's just, it's, it's, it's like the, it's like the apple core. Well, if we go by that logic, Quentin, then the United States shouldn't be doing anything because at the end of the day, it's like India, China, Southeast it's, Asia that yeah, are polluting. Uh, yeah, fair. fair. I, I see what you're saying. And you're right that we can't just stop all because, oh, well, they're the worst. Go after them. But if there was only resources to go after one, if it was, I would say, yes, go after China. If it was an either or situation, I would agree with you. If it was like we can only we only have the resources to either regulate airplanes or cross-country diesel trucks which one should we do and i'll be like okay i get that you're gonna go after the airplanes because they pollute more but it's not it's not the case or the epa has enough funding to be able to do this and other things because this is not an epa resource intensive thing you're gonna pretend that you have this right and then you're gonna get a law passed that makes it so you do actually have this right and then you're gonna be able to be like okay this is the law if you don't like it well we're gonna fine you and, that's, and they're going to sit there all day and they're just going to find people. They're going to they're going to generate the money they need to enforce it from yeah, the fine. And that's the money grab. So it's just, it's 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 unfortunately a libertarian dream to have this conversation because they'd be like, see, that's the government. And I don't agree with that necessarily. I don't necessarily agree that that it is bad to have the regulations. I want to see regulations to a point. Right. But I want to see it done smartly. And I don't think it's smart to go after the automotive aftermarket. Maybe automotive more than motorcycle, but not even not even that. I, I'm with you when I think there's there's bigger fish to fry. But like for me, just looking at like what the EPA is trying to do, like I'm like it's a very smart thing the EPA is doing. It's a very smart thing. I, I can see it from 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 the EPA's perspective with the goal of of reducing emissions as a whole. Like this is a very easy thing to implement that will have effect. On, I don't think on, it'll have any effect. It won't do shit. It, it is a, it's a red herring. If you want to talk about fish to fry, they're frying a fucking red herring. All right. <laughs> I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on this okay, one. Okay, fair enough. Um, I believe you have a listener question you want to talk about. Yes, I do, but I'm going to have to get his <laughs> get name because I forgot. So you got to get the laptop going. Sorry. All right, we got a uh, listener question from Andre Battle. This was quite a while ago. I apologize to Andre, but, well, we're, we're answering it now. So um, let me see. I want you to let you know that you've got a 22-year-old super sport bike rider. I like your podcast a lot, and I have a question, and I forgot who was the mechanic, but whichever one of you, I have a question for you. Do you think being a motorcycle mechanic is still a job worth looking getting into? 
And that's a, a I mean, we could de- dedicate a podcast to this, right? But I'll we'll, we'll try and I'll try and make it quick and simple, and I'll be interested to see what what Jensen has to say. So I went to MMI in the mid '90s to become a motorcycle mechanic. I did so because I knew I would most likely fail out of uh, a normal higher education, whether that would be junior college or college or whatever. I, I was not a very good student, and I was not going to do well. I have to be hands-on, uh, and so I chose this because it was a passion. I did it. I went through the school. I was fortunate that I was able to get through the school, get out of it, get a job, uh, start working on motorcycles, not kill anybody, because that's the biggest problem with working on motorcycles. This is that you're about to put other people's lives in your hands more than you ever would with almost any other vehicle. So that, that's something you have to reconcile and not a lot of people think about. Uh, so I managed to do that, uh, without many issues in the beginning. Sure. I've made my mistakes and sure. I had had problems doing it, but I started working at a motorcycle shop for $7 an hour in California in I think 97. And I, I, I mean, that was that when you get out of MMI, when you get out of a vocational education school, you are looked at as the lowest of the low and you're, it's, it's going to take a long time. So patience is key. And over the course of, uh, of, of time, I managed to, uh, get to a Ducati shop in Los Angeles. I was just, I just was tenacious about it, got paid a little bit more lucked into getting a position where I worked as a mechanic, not just a shop sweep and then started making more money. And then I started racing. And then, I mean, it just, it just, it just snowballed over the course of years. So I was fortunate and I, I, we could go into so much detail how it happened for me, but I, it was, there was a lot of fortune, fortune favors the brave, but there was a lot of fortune. So I come from a, uh, an upper middle class background. I don't, I don't have never had to want for anything. I've had an easy life. So you have to temper that with that to understand that I am, I didn't have to bootstrap it all the way. I've had a lot of support. So I was able to do it, but I was able to do it smartly and, and click, click, click up through the, through the ratchet mechanism of, of the motorcycle industry and, and work on bikes for a while and, and enjoy it. So the question is, is, is that what you want to do for the rest of your life? From what I saw early on, the mechanics at shops, even at the, the one of the most premier Ducati shops in, in, in the world called Pro Italia, was they were burnt out, angry, really, really just angry and burnt out, right? Horrible. I and, mean, imagine, I, 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 just to chime in, Yep. I, I don't think I've ever been to a dealership that didn't have that that mechanic. And the better mechanics, unfortunately, are usually the grumpier mechanics. Yeah. Right? And it sucks. Because they've been around and doing it for 10, 20 years or however long. And it they is. don't make a, a shit ton of money. No. So at, in this in this economy, if you can make as say as a A technician, as a high level efficient technician that can bill hours. So again, this goes into conversation how technicians get paid. You get paid if you're good at what you do, you get paid flat rate. That means for every hour that you build, you get you get you paid for that hour. And but if it takes you two hours to get that job done, you're still getting paid that hour. If it takes you a half an hour to get the job done, you're still getting paid for the hour. That's flat rate. So a good technician can just kill it. They're, if they're efficient at what they do and they don't have comebacks, comebacks are when a bike comes back after it's been worked on for a problem and they, uh, they make good use of their time while at their shop. They're not taking smoke breaks. They're not BSing. They're getting it done. They can make 60 to 70 grand a year 
but that's not a that's not a lot. It's not like a depending where you live. A, well, I, absolutely, and that's the biggest problem is that it is a lot if you're in Omaha, but it's not a lot if you're in Portland. It's it's decent. It's good. I think you can make a good living and you can have an, a fairly nice house. But watching Portland grow, watching San Francisco, watching Los Angeles, Seattle, so the large cities on the West Coast, that's where you can make the money. That that's the deal. Is for the most part, unless you want to work on bullshit. Sorry, I'm gonna just say it, especially from somebody that's. As, uh, has a bend towards super sport or crotch rockets. If you want to work on snow machines and you want to work on watercraft and you want to work on generators, there might be places elsewhere in the nation where you can do that and bill a lot of hours. But then you're bending over horrible machines all day long. It's not a lot of fun. It's it's tough to get enthusiastic about it. Unless you have a diagnostic mind that likes to dig into whatever vehicle. Then I'd say get into cars, but then cars will suck your soul away because it's a it's a completely different thing. And cars yeah. are going to the point now too, where it's like, you're just hooking up a computer and the computer's telling you what and, to do. And you know what? I did an Audi training class last year in May. Um, just as, just as a, uh, it was an electronic class mostly. And, and after watching that, I was like, I, I have absolutely no desire to get into this. It doesn't, it, it doesn't tickle my fancy at all. Whereas figuring out why, why my, Mercedes van with points ignition doesn't work. That that got me excited, right? So the the further it gets into technology, the the less I'm interested in it. But that's the reality for somebody getting into it. So for Andre, it's like, well, do you have a diagnostic mind? Do you do you do you think things through like this? Do you like the idea of figuring out which one of the black black boxes isn't working? Then that might be the go. If you want to learn how to to do the mechanical side of it, so here's the deal. If if you want to get into it, yes, it's absolutely valuable. The things that I have learned to by uh, learning how to work on vehicles transfers to anything. It could be a washing machine. It could be a, a an airplane. If you give me a mechanism that's broken, I love fixing it and figuring it out. And that's an awesome thing, and it will last me through the rest of my life. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, especially at an early age. For you, 20s, great. But if it was somebody that's 45 and they want to... They want to change careers and ah, man, unless you're independently wealthy and you just want to do it because it's fun. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it at all. But if you're in at the incipient stage of your career and you want to learn something that's vocational and you don't necessarily want to be a carpenter or a plumber or anything like that, then it's, that's probably a good thing to get into. I like that. I think it's a, it's a smart move. Unfortunately, there's not many places to do it. So that's the the most uh, compacted version I can I can give. I can I would never tell anybody that's a bad thing to learn how to work on a motorcycle because if you're a motorcyclist at all, uh, you're better off as the person that can work on your own machine. You are way better off, and it will save you countless hours and countless thousands of dollars over the years that you work on motorcycles if you can take care of your own stuff. So there's that, Jensen. Yeah, um, I don't disagree with anything you just said. Okay. So air high five. We went from the EPA to this. We're right? back. We're buddies again. All right. So when we, when I first brought this up, they were like, oh, I'm going to, well, you, you alluded to be like, oh, I've got a lot to say about this. Yeah, I do. Cause, cause there's, there's a few things, there's a few things that approach it. And I I've done a bit of, um, occupational coaching, um, when I was in grad school for undergraduates. And the first thing I would always ask someone is, you know, what do you want? What do you want? Like big picture? What do you want? What are your goals in life? And this, this, this is, comes down to like pretty much every business negotiation I've ever done too. Let's just talk about what we want. What are your goals? Where do you want to be five, 10 years from now? 
um, and and work your way from there because everything you're going to do from here until then is a stepping stone to get to that goal. So, you know, without having Andre here to ask him that question, like we have to kind of like make some inferences, but I would, I would say to anyone listening, like who, who's thinking about becoming a man, mechanic, it's like, okay, well, where do you want to be? And why do you want to, why do you think being a mechanic is, is going to get you there? Um, I can say from a grander, from a large perspective, just from like a Smithsonian economics view of specialization of labor. If you're an American looking at getting into a blue collar job, it's not the way the economy is going. It's not the way our division of labor in this country is going. We're going to a service-based economy. That being said, there's always going to be a need for people to fix a car, to fix a motorcycle, to build a house, to fix your plumbing. It's just those jobs are decreasing over time in, in a grander hundred year scheme of things. So just, I just put that if out there. If they're decreasing though, that actually might benefit those in it because you might be able to get more out of it, right? Less competition. There is an element of that. Um, I, the shoe cobbler is a great example of a job that, that is going like the way of the dodo. You know, it's hard to find a shoe cobbler. Like I actually have a pair of boots that I need to, to get repaired, uh, hiking boots. And we've got like five cobblers in Portland. And I just saw one the other day, uh, actually out by your neck of the woods. Um, so I got to take my shoes down to him. So there's like, you know, yeah, that, that shoe cobbler. Sure. But only as good as, Hey, I can go buy a new set of shoes for, there's you know, that too. So that's, there's that too. And for me, like my pair of hiking shoes are, are fairly expensive. I know the repair cost on it's going to be about 10 bucks. So it works yeah, out. So and, and for me, like I've bought a good pair of shoes. Like I knowing full, like. Every few years, I'm going to put 10 bucks into them, put 10 bucks into them, but these are going to last me for 10, 20 years. So that's fine. Yeah. Um, but not a lot of people think about that. They just want no. throwaway society. We are a throwaway bought, society. I bought a $180 pair of, of Alpenstar's boots and they're worn out. The soles worn out. Do I get a Vibram sole? No, I just go buy another set of boots. Right. <laughs> right? right. And it's it's interesting that that's part of the what we're talking about here. Absolutely. Is, are, do we have throwaway vehicles? It's one of the reasons why I specialized in Ducati. I mean, it wasn't like a big deal to me, but I remember thinking early on, it's like, well, this gets me out of having to work on cruisers. This gets me out of working on, on seriously on boats, on, on watercraft, on, on uh, four wheelers. Like how can I focus and get on something that I like? And then also become really specialized because the way I see it, the people that can work on these, it was like the, my, and I think this trickled down from my mom. My mom, when she was a young woman, had a Lotus and my dad had an MG uh, he had, a, he had, they had a, a, a bevy of different uh, British sports cars and they always talked about their mechanic with reverence. Sure. And in, in my well, head. Well, if you own a British sports car, of course you, you had to. You, it was, your your it was mechanic critical. is basically like better than family. Exactly. Yeah, and, right. that, and that was the, something that stuck in my head very much. So I was like, well, if I'm going to be good at something, if I want to do this I, and I'm, I'm going to get into something that you, it's a little bit off the beaten path and rare and exotic. And sure enough, it's worked out for me very well because of that. Yeah. Now, was it really that deep in my psyche? But when I was a t- early twenties, no, but it, it certainly was a little bit, there was a little bit. So think about that as well. It's like, well, if you, <clears throat> if you ride a Jixer, uh, and you want, if you love Jixers and that's all you want to work on, you're limiting yourself. But if you just want to get into the motorcycle realm and you want to ride dirt bikes or you want to ride a certain type and you want to be a focused expert, I can't say that's a bad thing either. And then you see people go from being a mechanic at a shop to being a suspension mechanic or being a race team mechanic, which is a completely different thing. And it's something that I've done. But that's that's again, that that can go off on tangent stuff. But when you specialize 
you can make a, a, a better situation for yourself. So that might be a similar thing to the cobbler in that, yeah, there's a shoe store, but then there's the cobbler. There's working at a motorcycle shop or there's working at a suspension shop, right? The one that we went to recently with uh, AJ because he had a really bizarro shock on his, uh, on his trials bike. Yeah. We had to go to a, a, a specific shop that I had never even heard of that was not too far away from my house. And they just work on dirt bike shocks and that's their deal. And that's, they don't specific dirt bike. Absolutely. Shocks, yeah. And that, that's cool. And that might be the a way to look at it is don't limit yourself to thinking of the box of being a dealership mechanic. But this comes right back. This comes right back into Adam Smith's idea of the specialization of labor. Like there's, there's like that you're talking about specialty. So that's so that, I mean, Adam think, Smith. Yeah. Is, is I, got, that, I, got, I got the book right over here. Is that the Book of Mormon? Adam Smith? Adam Smith, turn of the century, economics. Okay, got it. Yeah. Okay, so you have the book, and what does he say about the division of labor? I mean, when you're talking about a service, and this is stuff that I don't really even know the terminology. I get it. I understand that it is a service economy to a point, but I don't understand yeah. really what that means. Well, so well, give us a quick... Well, Wealth of Nations, a book that you don't want to read because it's horribly written and long and written in 18th century English. Um, but the basic idea is if you go back in society long enough, uh, not quite hunter gatherer level, yeah. but you know, that idea of like, we didn't really live in large social structures. So it'd be like, I would need to know how to put a horse. I need to know how to, this is well, actually, I'm trying to think of a good way of example. Cause I was about to say, I didn't know how to put a horseshoe on a horse, but then we had ironsmiths cause ironsmiths came out of this evolution yeah, of, sure. but there was a point in time when human beings basically had to know how to do everything. Yeah. You were a one-stop shop. You were in the middle Jack of nowhere and you were I know not to, hunting gathering, but you had just got into agriculture and that was how you, but there is like an element, like I need to know how to hunt for deer and plant crops yeah. and weave my clothing and cook my food, yep. raise my children, build my shelter uh, maybe there's some sort of transportation thing at that point in time. If it's horses or we're buggies talking about or whatever. the Oregon trail, when you played that video game, Absolutely. that's what those people did. You had to pick a, you had to pick a skill set. But, but at that point too, it's also like we, we'd evolved a society where like people have learned medicine and they've become healers. People have learned woodworking and they can build things. People have learned iron working. They can build horseshoes and metal straps and people have specialized into specific tasks because, from an economic point of view, society is more efficient when you specialize at being a mechanic and I specialize at being a journalist and they specialize in creating buildings and yeah. roadways, things like that. We get more done collectively as a society. And that's where the Adam Smith kind of theory of specialization of labor and division of labor plays into. So look at that at a macro scale. Look at that at a global scale. We're now in a global economy. So we're seeing uh, manufacturing move out of the United States. Why? Because it's cheaper to do in other places because we can hire, unfortunately, we can hire children in third world countries that have tiny little hands that can make those Nike shoes so much easier and quicker <laughs> than, you know, my big dumb, you know, adult fingers can, and they'll do it for 13 cents an hour and I'll do it of, for $13 an hour. That's and, more of what it is, isn't it? And so we see this, that's the special, but that's the specialization, the division of labor because certain areas are becoming better at doing things than others. And that that's left not necessarily a vacuum in the United States, but it's being filled with what we're calling service industry jobs. So we're talking about, desk jobs basically we've moved away from blue collar factory manufacturing um type of jobs to white collar desk jobs and and college education has had a huge part of it when you look at the population as it's grown in the u.s on how many people have a college 
education or higher, it's it's grown exponentially. And that and that plays into it. So so I would just, you know, from a very kind of almost esoteric level, say just be aware of that's the trend in the United States. And it's not going to turn around anytime soon. We do have kind of like a maker renaissance going on. And, yeah. and that's kind of what the 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 kind of the hipster scene is kind of latched onto, but it's also kind of a it's a larger generational thing. But I think and, that's and it could be fleeting. But hold on, I want to make a point on that. So be if you, I'll will give you some reading. Read a book called Shop Class as Soulcraft. Uh, it's written by I don't know who the guy is, but he was really intellectually arrogant. But it's a good book if you can get past this guy's intellectual arrogance. Uh, and it it's basically a, a a talk about vocational education and why it's critical. There are 320 million people, something like that, in the United Roughly, States right now. Yeah. Uh, let's let's call it that. That's a lot of people, and I think economies change. I'm sure there's nodes where they change at X amount of thousands of people, X amount of hundreds of thousands of people, X amount of millions of people. Like what? Where are all these people? What are they doing? Where are they going? What are they? Yeah. So they have desk jobs, but they got to get there somehow. They got to live in houses. They got to have, there are going to be places where you, there, there are going to absolutely vocational education is, is going to always be around. I don't think there's ever going to be a situation where everybody can have a desk job, right? No, I, I agree with you in that sense, but understand at the same point, that doesn't mean that the trend isn't real and the trend isn't happening. Like, yeah, there always is going to be plumbers, but what I think that's going to mean is let's say there's 20,000 plumbers in the U S right now. I don't have no idea. Yeah, sure. Let's say there's 20,000 now. I think 50 years from now, there's going to be 5,000 plumbers and, and maybe, and, and, and that, and that comes right back to the cobbler. Like, you know, there used to be a cobbler in every neighborhood. You go back, you go back far enough, like old timey England, right. Or old timey U S colonial history. There was a cobbler in every little town and there was a, a blacksmith in every little yeah, town sure. and there was a, a carpenter and all that stuff as things evolve, those certain kind of trade craft jobs are becoming less and less and less. Does that, does that it's not technology mean, related? Does that mean we're never going to have, we're gonna, there's going to be a point where we don't have any cobblers? No, that's not what I'm saying. And that's what I, and I think the, the maker kind of renaissance that we're having now is more of a pushback to that trend. But I don't think, I don't think it has any value in the sense of like, Oh, well, this is just a cycle and it's, it's going to come back thing. up. Yeah. It's just like, no, we're having this response of like, no one knows how to do X anymore. Like, like I remember when Jesse James came on the scene, like there's things that he was doing by hand with metal that just no one did anymore. And he would just like, he's, he learned it from like some like 80 year old metal worker who taught him how to use like an English wheel, an English wheel. Thank yeah. you very much. Sure. And like, and it's like one of those things like, all right, is the English wheel coming back? No, but is there going to be like certain people that pick it up because it's their final well, romanticism it, it, in it? it sure. It kind of has come back. But only as we see it, when I see Metal Fab now, he helped or in the early 2000s get a lot of these Metal Fab shops, which are a lot of these bikes that you see on Bike Exif and a lot of the cars that you see on Chip Foose's TV show or whatever sure. are now, it's, it's helping. Actually, there's quite a lot of people that have a, 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 a sandbag with a metal hammer that they can form aluminum yeah. with. And it has helped. And there are little things like that. But really, technology is there's a stamping plant in Cleveland that does it. And it does it in a second. It can right. hammer a fender out what it'll take you weeks to do, right? 400 years ago, the number of people that were using a English wheel was exponentially larger than the number of people that were using it 10 years ago versus yeah, sure. Sure. And even today. Yeah. You know, and maybe 10 years ago there was 100 and maybe now there's 200. It's not like this is a, a trend that's coming back. Yeah, it's sure. just, it's an ebb and flow. It's, it's now it's becoming a, tr it's literally becoming a trend in the sense of what the public gentry finds appealing. 
Yeah. Uh, and it's not going to be anything. It's not meaningful. something we need for, for, to live. Like the, the, the guy rolling the piece of metal on the English wheel isn't doing it to make mass produced right. stuff for the, for the 320 million people. He's doing it to make it for the very small part of the population that wants handcrafted car parts. He's or become, parts. he's become something similar to an artist where it's like, you're, you're making something very specific in a certain way for people who take value in the way you're making it. And we're valuing, and we're basically evaluating your work product in the same way we do fine art. Whereas I look at a Monet and I look at something that my little cousins make, and I probably couldn't really tell you why one's worth millions of dollars and the other one's going up on my fridge because it's all swirls of paint to me. Someone somewhere yeah. has looked at those and said, "This will this Monet was influenced by this, and he drank this wine, and uh, and I put yeah. it on my wall, sure. and da da da." So you're paying for pretentiousness, you're, frankly, basically, right? Basically, then that's that. And 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 there's nothing wrong with it. Nope, not hating on it, but the same goes for the motorcycle but side. To get it, to bring it back to to mechanics, I think I think being a mechanic, we're always going to need to have people that fix the machines that we use. There's always going to be some sort of job for mechanics. What that job looks like and how many of those jobs, just looking at the bigger trend, is is kind of scary. And so you know, I'm just thinking like so this guy, he's he's in his 20s. So we're talking about something that he's probably going to end up doing for another. You know, maybe 50 years at the maximum, retire mm-hmm. around 70. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like 50 years from now, like what's going to th- be out I there? Think, I think the trend that you're, you're getting into a time frame that's long enough that the trend is going to affect it. Yeah. And maybe that means, you know, a shop like Motor Corsa has what? Seven mechanics or so. Maybe 50 years from now they have two or one. So, you know, you think about things like that. And the mechanic um, might not even be working on a piston engine vehicle. It might be working on the electric vi- well, vehicle or that something too. like that. And there's right? that too. So like the training that you get in MMI today, um, I don't know how much training they do on electrics. But you know, if you're learning just piston engines, that might not be relevant in 20 years or as relevant as it once was. You might need to have like some, ed- some electrical engineering experience, maybe not an EE degree. No, but you're going to have to have some training on how to deal with, you know, AC motors and controllers. Oh, and, and I'd do that anyway. High capacity batteries. Yeah, um, I would do that anyway. And that, um, uh, low and high voltage. So if somebody was going to say, all right, sure. build me a, a, a career path and I'd, I'd have some very specific things that I would do. And maybe we can talk about that on another time. But I, I would have to say that it had, it, I would do it maybe a little bit differently than I did. I was fortunate and, and I came through just at a kind of the halcyon time of motorcycling in the late 90s, early 2000s, or one of the halcyon times. I think there there was a point in the 70s, it was, it was like the golden era of the 70s. And then there was a lot of doldrums through the 80s and 90s. Then it started to ramp back up and I just happened to catch that wave. So I was fortunate. Now, hold on. There's one more thing. You, when you work on motorcycles, when you work on anything, you are surrounded by nasty chemicals, grime, dirt, right? So a lot of people think of the um, sexy aspect of, of you, you've got a motorcycle part on your bench. You don't think of the, frankly, the blood and guts. It takes a toll on you. It takes a toll on your body. And, and the more you're around these methyl ethyl death chemicals that are used as cleaners, detergents, solvents, etc., the worse off you are. And I have watched many a friend and a few people in the industry uh, either be affected by it and or die in really weird ways with horrible cancers because they have been surrounded by this stuff. Now, it's empirical. I mean, it's, it's 
it's circumstantial, but I'm just saying it's common I, sense. I, I worry about it. Right. A great example. I was, I was, I was bleeding my brakes yesterday on my hyper Ugh, yeah, sure. and I got just this littlest bit of brake fluid on my finger. And I, and I remember yeah, like, I was like warm. Yeah. And I was just like, Oh, it kind of burns. I'm literally getting like a really, really, really mild chemical burn right now because brake fluid is such a caustic and it's nasty fluid. Shit, right. And you're like, like think about that, like doing that on a daily basis. Like it doesn't even have to be like, Oh, I, you know, uh, you know, some of the more egregious kind of chemical yeah, issues. Say like, you're a paint, you're a painter and you're in a paint booth all the time. And you don't use a respirator. Fuck. I have a friend that's 75 years old and he's still in a paint booth all the time. And he has been since the sixties and he's okay. And he was doing it when the, the shit was really, really, really bad. Yeah. So maybe it's, maybe it, you know, maybe there's not too much to it, but just be aware of that. That's one thing that you wouldn't think of. The whole angry mechanic thing is another, you've got to be fairly mentally stable. You are in the, <laughs> Worst part of a shop relative to low on the totem pole at most shops because the way sales is gone, sales is king, even though, frankly, the workshops are the heart and soul of any dealership. The sales departments and the parts departments have become the profit centers. So you're on the back foot being in the part of the dealership that in most cases is kind of the pariah. It's the place, oh man, we just have to do that. We have to because we sell these. We have to have a service department. Whereas back, say 50 years ago, the service part was the driver to sell the bikes to be, okay, I know I have a good mechanic, then I'm going to buy my, my motorcycle from that mechanic that's at that shop down the street. And that has changed over the years to be way more, you know, it's iPod like you want to buy a Ducati. It's almost like you're getting presented uh, as, as you go into the Apple store. I, I, I agree. I agree on the broader strokes, but I still think that's there. Like I would not have bought my hyper if I didn't have AJ and sure. all those guys sure. down at sure. Moto Corsa. Yeah. If I didn't, if I knew I didn't have a good Ducati deal, dealership in town i wouldn't own ducati it's the same reason like there's a couple brands of bikes that i would love to have in my garage but because we don't have strong dealers here in portland i'm just probably never going to do it yeah the mv augusta thing and i i'm i'm against it because these bikes i've got a bunch of them sitting around me now uh for sale and they're really pretty they're really pretty and and i i enjoy them aesthetically uh and a lot of people come in i'm like well what 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 i do to do you guys work on them it's like well unfortunately we do basic stuff but no, right? We we don't have any of the tools. We're not it's gonna not like you have the special tool for an Aprilia or an MV right? or a no, Honda we, or whatever all, it is. We used to be the dealer and then we unfortunately got rid of a lot of tools. I would have never gotten rid of any tools. I think that's the worst thing you can ever do in life is if you start a collection of tools at any point for any reason, keep them through for the rest of your life, right? That's another that's another tenant that I would say. After after seeing uh, what I've seen over the years, always keep your tools, always add to them if you can and keep them for as long as you can. So in this case, we don't have the tools to work on the bikes. It might be a godsend because then we don't have to have a MV Augusta F4 apart, but we, you don't really have to, cause they don't, most of these vehicles, whether it be BMW cars, bikes, or, or Ducatis or, or anything, it's not, it's not the mechanical stuff as much that goes horribly wrong. It's usually electronic stuff, which is why, again, I go back to, if you're going to start this process, go to a community college and take as much electronics as you can to familiarize yourself with electricity, then get into the motorcycle realm, right? So that's, that's the recommendation. That reminds me, that reminds me, that was the second thing I was going to say to, to kind of counter argue my own point. There is this idea and there is this, this trend. And I think it is more relevant than, than say the maker Renaissance or the makers movement, um, of this idea. Like since like, there's like this default and I, and I grew up in a household where the default position was, of course, you're going to college. The, the, yeah. that's, that's, you're going to go to college. You're going to graduate high school. You're going to go to college. 
the debate was going to be whether or not I was going to go to grad school. That's how, that's how my family approached education. And there is that idea like that's very, that's, that's very much an institutional thought process in America right now. It's not this idea like, of course you're going to graduate high school and of course you're going to go to college. Maybe it's a two year college, maybe it's a community college, but you're going to go get a, a higher degree than your high school degree and go on and, and get your desk job or whatever it is and, you know, live out the American dream or however that's interpreted. And there is this kind of like thing of, you know, we, we put so much value on college education you know, and this is coming from someone that had about a quarter million dollars in student loan debt after four years of college and four years of grad school. And, and it's this idea of, and then I'm going to go, you know, like I remember actually getting sat down when I was graduating law school. I still had another year of business school to finish. Um, and they, they, cause I had federal loans. You have to go through this, they call it, I don't know if it's training, but it's like a debrief kind of thing that the takeaway is they basically sit you down and be like, this is how much money you owe uh, in, in student loans. This is how much money you need to make each year in order to make basic living yep. arrangements and pay off your student loans. And I remember that. It was and that's like, not even saving for, for future. No, is it? no, 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 no. Nope. It's like literally like to pay your apartment, your thousand dollar a month apartment, eat $300 a month in food, and have like a hundred bucks in gas and pay your student loans. And it was like 90 K a year. It was a ridiculous amount of money. And and that's part of why like lawyer salaries are kind of fucked up to be honest, like <laughs> and skewed. And that's kind of, and that's actually been an interesting thing in the legal space. Like law schools are actually getting pushed back now. And a couple law schools got sued because they're saying like, Oh yeah, starting salary after you graduate law school is like 120 K. And you're like, that's yeah, really not. And you're not really tacking into the fact that like, 25% of your students are making like 40 to 60 K a year because they're taking like public defender or public D or um, prosecutor roles that don't pay well. And like it's being skewed by these guys, like by like the top 10% in the class that are getting these $200,000 a year contracts to go work for top law firms. So it's, it's really like this huge spread. And so it's this idea and, and that, that trickles down into like college education. It's like, they're like, Oh, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get good job. And I'm gonna make like 80 K a year. Like, well, it's not necessarily the case. And we're seeing as, more and more people get a college education, the good, the good jobs, I'm doing little quotes in the air that would a college education would get you. That would be like, Oh, I'm going to go and get that $80,000 a year job. Well now that like that's become an incredibly competitive, uh, position to get into. So it's not like, Oh, I go to college and I get a good job. It's like, well now you go to college just to keep up with everyone else that's going to college. And now it's like turning all, it almost feels like it's turning like, oh, I have to go to grad school just to be even more competitive. Well, than, and than and those. so we saw this specifically. Oh, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me just finish this okay. thought. Yeah. And that, that, you know, it's become this like rabbit hole of education. Whereas, like, you know what? Like, if you get, you become an apprentice for a carpenter or a plumber or an electrician and you do, you know, your five, I don't know how long an apprenticeship would be in those cases. Uh, when I was a carpenter, you know, you did two, three years and you could, you could be considered a, a well learned carpenter and you could go out. You can actually make really good money. You can make six figures as a plumber. You can make six figures as as an electrician with virtually no college education. You could argue you don't even really need a high school education. You just need to have vocational training. So I think there is some value to vocational education in terms of income earned versus education spent or money spent on education. And I think that's that's something we're getting a little upside down because there is such like a stigma of like, oh, you have to go to college well, or you have to be college and, educated. And that's why I want to bring the point. I knew, I knew where you were going and that's the same place where I was going to go was when the economy tanked in 08, right-ish, uh, I ended up getting a job at Ducati and I was making a lot of money, man, and a lot of people I knew 
I don't have, I graduated high school with like whatever is the lowest you possibly can, like a 1.6 or something, right? I barely fucking graduated you got, high school. You, you didn't get right? your GED, but you almost. Right. <laughs> I'm, I, it was as good as, right? Yeah. And then I ended up doing some, some community college, but not enough to get any, anywhere with it. I just, just stopped because I started making enough money at, 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 uh, working on motorcycles that I was able to have a good life, right? I could see it. I could see that path. So I just took it. I don't really have many regrets about not going back to school, but if there's ever a note in life where you think, oh man, I'm, I'm really in a bad thing. Maybe I should go back to school and learn something. It, it is an easy default, but most of the people that I knew that had gone through so many pains to go through school and I'm watching seriously PhD level people, high level people that have been in school for eight years off and on when have multiple degrees and they were just struggling and it wasn't really that was even. Me. That was me. I had four degrees and I was looking for a job and I'm lucky that I'm a, self-starter entrepreneurial so kind of person start, self-started so i started out fall and rubber yeah but I, I had a lot of classmates who were not so lucky and i had a lot of classmates who um like in my, my some of my law school class they they found themselves unemployed because they they were the lowest man on the total pole in their law firms i had people who were a year younger than me coming out of law school uh who were basically entering the job force during the recession who were seeing their offers rescinded my business school class um, we came out right in the recession. Uh, if you didn't have an offer before the recession started, you, there was no job offers afterwards. So a lot of, I think 60% of my business school class, we're talking a top MBA program in this country, a uh, top 20 MBA program, 60% unemployed at graduation, Uh huge, huge issue. And it's tough to, to watch. So that was why I'd be like, well, is it worth it? And, and I, and I still look at it like, well, it depends on the person. It's all case by case, but holy crap. I wouldn't, if it would have been my kid sitting there as a 16 year old looking at colleges at while in high school, I'd be like, Hmm, mm, I don't know if you want to do that. Right. Yeah. You know, I think, I think we have to, I think my takeaway would be, you have to question what you're doing. And that's, and that's the same thing. Like when I have people ask me about, Oh, I want to go to law school. I want to go to business school. And I think, I think the, the question goes far back to, Oh, I want to go to college and they say like, well, why are you going to go do that? Well, what's the, what is that degree going to go get you that, uh, that is going to in turn going to help you become more employed or earn more in your paycheck? Because, because if you don't have an ends to the means on that, like, then what are you doing? Like just the default position of, Oh, you should go to college. Why? Because because everyone goes to college. Well, that's not that's not good enough. Right? Because it's like, no, then you have to get married, and then you have to have two point five kids, and then you have to live in the big house in the suburbs. Well, and, it's not even it's not right? even that. Like it's just like we took for so long in this country a college education meant a certain lifestyle came with it, and that's really not the case anymore because a college education has become so ubiquitous in this country and so commonplace. Yeah, that it's like well, you're not really standing out as like a person of higher education or of higher experience or of higher training. You're you're just keeping up with everyone else. So you got a college education, so, and so did you've 90% done something of that really interesting sure. on top of it. Then maybe and, or and that would be my my biggest advice to to Andre, and that would be my biggest advice to anyone in life. And this is what I'll tell my kids if I have kids one day. It's it's not what you do. It's it's be the best at what you do. You know, if you're going to be a plumber, like be a good plumber because a good plumber is never going to want for work. If you're going to be a good marketer, if you're going to be, sorry, if you're going to be a marketer, be a good marketer because a good marketing guy is never going to be out of work. If you're going to be a dentist, go be a dentist, but be the best dentist there is because when you're the best at something that, that becomes like a, a defensible position. Like uh, you're never going to, I yep. think, worry as much in life as other people. But if you're just a cog in a wheel, if you can be replaced by another cog in the wheel, that's where you start getting into trouble.
And it's tough to say, well, what does that mean? But you just, you, you have to use life experience to figure out whatever it is you're doing, you have to be the best at. If being the best at being a motorcycle mechanic means you're flagging 110 hours in an 80 hour, two week period that, and there's no comebacks and you're, you're, uh, pleasant to be around to, f- with your colleagues and you don't stir the pot and you get to still love motorcycles. Uh, that, I mean, there, all of those things are very tenuous when you're in the motorcycle industry. It's easy to get burnout and jaded and, and fucked up and then not ride motorcycles and then hate it. And I watched it over and over and over. And I'm so fortunate that I've managed to spend the past, uh, 12 or so years, 14 years, out of the retail area of motorcycling, and it was during a very critical time uh, in my 20s and 30s, so I was able to get away from that jaded, fucked up, angry side, and now I'm back in the retail, and I'm actually enjoying it quite a lot, way more than I thought I would, because I ha- I don't have the past 15 years of just being angry and shitty that I was in a retail job, right? So for me, I'm, I'm in a good space, but I've changed up. I, I, I am trying to take a, a, an avoidance measure to get away from being angry and shitty about being on the service side. So take that as part of the, um, as part of the story, right? This part of the story is now I am in a situation where I'm buying and trading and, uh, selling, uh, pre-owned bikes, uh, for my living and I'm, I'm digging it, but my, experience as a mechanic is helping it by a long shot. So I'm able to parlay that into doing what I'm doing right now. And I love it. So that's cool. And I'm, I'm fortunate. So that's what I, back earlier in the conversation, I talked about, be careful of the box, be careful putting yourself in the box and going down the same lines as the people that go get the college education, get X amount of degrees, get out and expect something. Same thing goes for you, right? Get, have a feeling about what you're going to do, get an idea of what your end goal is going to be in 10 years, but then have, keep, always keep an eye out, always keep the windows open as long as you can and keep an eye out because that you never know where it's going to take you. Uh, and I'm, I'm an object lesson in that for sure. The only thing I would add is, um, the word of warning. And this is, this is something I've had to take to heart with asphalt and rubber. The day that asphalt and rubber starts ruining motorcycles for me, the start, the day I start getting jaded and not really enjoying motorcycles and it's just a job is literally the day that you'll see my resignation letter on the site because that's not where I want to get to. I want to have motorcycling always be something that is fun and my outlet for, yeah. for stress Huge and deal. my community and, and entertainment and travel and experience and all those things. And the day it stops being that for me, and I've seen this with so many of my colleagues where it's just, it's all they know and they don't have any desire to go find something else or, or any means to, that's literally the day like I'll shut it all down. And that would be my only word of advice or sorry, my word of caution to becoming a motorcycle mechanic. If you're a motorcycle enthusiast and you want to become a motorcycle mechanic because of that enthusiasm, just know that what happens or that there might be a day where you realize that like you no longer love motorcycles because of that job, because if you've gotten burned out on it or because you've become jaded and just what are you going to do next? Your entire life about something that you're passionate about, it runs the risk of of spoiling it for you. Kind of like everybody's going to crash a motorcycle. It's just a matter of time, right? Over an infinite amount of time, the survivability rate goes to zero. <laughs> I like that. That's a rational, logical way to look at it. Yeah. But that, that's, that's, that's life. You're not going to get out alive either. No. 
No, you're not. So you might as well enjoy it while you're doing it, right? Absolutely. And, and if, if Absolutely. Andre or myself or you uh, find it in motorcycles, fucking right on. Keep it up because it's it's good and you're part of the race to the top. So always be part of the race to the top. Not the race to the bottom. Not the race to the bottom. There's too many people There's too many people winning the race to the bottom. You want to start. Almost lifestyle in general, how, how to live and be happy in this society. And Well, that's, right? that's the thing, that, you know, and that's, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm stuck Andre uh, sent us that question because it because it does touch on a larger theme of just figure out how to be happy in life in general because so many people aren't okay you ready for uh, that to be wrapped up I think that's good all right then kickstands up ESU ESU oh no I can't do it man no kickstands up I'll just say kickstands up no KSU no stop it hashtag KSU you can do that. It's weird that you're going to transfer from the, are we still doing that? I I really kind of like your, your being the, the antagonist with it. Like fuck again. Right. So if you're, if you're adopting it, it's this, this might be the sea change. (laughs) It might be the sea change, but what you don't know is every time you say kick stands up, I kill a kitten. (laughs) So like, I'm just sitting here smiling, laughing, just being like, yeah, "Yeah, that's five kittens. We're at five kittens. Oh, six kittens now. (laughs) All right. Keep saying it. How many kitten tails are on your continents? (laughs) All right, good talk. See you out there. Later.